0: God, we live in a scary world, and we live in a hateful world. We live in a violent world. We live in a tragic world. And yet we are asked again today to believe that you are good, and that you are with us, and that through it all you are working out your plan of redemption to bring it all to a positive conclusion, and that through your Son, Jesus, you have invited us to put our trust completely in you, knowing that you can work through all things for our good and for your glory. And so today we throw ourselves again on your mercy and your grace. We ask for your peace to rule on earth as it is in heaven. We ask for your grace to abound in human hearts, to be able to overcome our division and our brokenness and to heal ancient wounds and to Bind up the brokenhearted. God, we ask for healing from earthquakes and illnesses and the disease that is a part of the fallenness of this good world that you had created, but that has been marred by sin and which the devil would love nothing more than to use for our uh, depression and to drive wedges in between us relationally, both as a church family, as a human family. And so, God, we just recognize again that none of this is in our power to manage or to maintain or control, and that without you, we are left with nothing. And so we ask for your presence and your power to be reminded that your spirit is with us today. Speak to us through your word and remind us that we are in your hands, and that we do not need to fear, but that in wisdom and in grace, we can navigate life. And have hope in a hostile world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we said last week in our introduction, and if you uh, haven't had a chance, you can go back and you can find that online and through our podcasts, and you can listen to that to catch up. We uh, recognize that we know from the story of Daniel and from other books in the Bible, as well as other historical sources from the region of uh, Mesopotamia and the ancient Near East at the time, that there was a lot happening in the world when Daniel was alive. There were geopolitical fault lines that were constantly shifting in the ancient Near East. There was constant warfare going on and jockeying for position between superpowers that leading to socioeconomic upheaval and mass migrations of people groups. And of course, the nation of Judah found itself at the crossroads of these warring powers and constantly caught in the middle. And as I said last week, that's just last night's news story, right? In order to get a sense of how Daniel in his book, or how Daniel is a book about hope in a hostile world, it is helpful to have at least some sense of this historical background to the story. And as we learned last week uh, in chapter one, verses one and verse 21 at the very beginning and end, mark for us the the, uh, historical markers of Daniel's ministry or his career in Babylon beginning in 605 BC and going to 539. We know that Nebuchadnezzar, who in 605 was the crown prince and son of the reigning king of Babylon, Nabopolassar and was his general who led the Babylonian army against Nineveh in the capital capital city of Assyria uh, and defeated Nineveh in 612 BC. That should be up in the north there where you can see that. And then in just uh, over to the east of there, uh, he defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish and uh, who had allied themselves with the Assyrians and drove the Egyptians south through Judah and uh, ended up in Jerusalem, drove them out of Judah back into Egypt. And while he was there, his father died and he went back to Babylon to become the king of Babylon. And that's when he took the first Um, group of exiles back with him, and Daniel and his friends were a part of that first group who went uh, from life in Judah and Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. Uh, They would have followed the known water routes at the time, particularly the Euphrates River, uh, as a way to traverse through the harsh desert climate at the time, which would have led them back to the capital city in Babylon. Now, we also know that Uh, Daniel was a contemporary of other biblical figures that you would have heard of, uh, particularly Jeremiah uh, and Ezekiel. Uh, Jeremiah uh, was... uh... A prophet in Jerusalem during this time, 626 to 528 BC. And Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon. He had also gone into exile and prophesied there, 592 to 570 BC. And also, we know that the second part of the book of Isaiah, which is some of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible, and many of which even predict the coming of Messiah, particularly chapters 44 to 66, were written during this period of exile. There were several different uh, groups of exiles, uh, exile groups taken over that period. The first group of Daniel and his friends was in 605, as we said. Eight years after Daniel was taken in 597, a second group of 10,000 Jews was taken to Babylon, including the, the prophet Ezekiel, as I just mentioned. We can read in 2 Kings 24, verse 14, where it says, he, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, carried all Jerusalem into exile. All the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000, it says, only the poorest people of the land were left. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verses 2 and 3, as Ezekiel begins to tell his story, it says, on the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, uh, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. Then again, about nine years later, in 586 BC, the temple of Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The city of Jerusalem was comp- completely devastated, and a third group of exiles was, t- was taken to Babylon. And that at that point, uh, Jeremiah was ministering in Jerusalem, and he was allowed to stay to continue his ministry work with the people there in Israel. And the main point of the story of Daniel is that really on the surface, it may look like Nebuchadnezzar has all the power and that God's people had none. But the story very quickly from the very beginning informs us that there's a greater reality at work than what appears to be happening on the surface. Very simply and directly, the author puts it in verse 2. It says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, meaning Nebuchadnezzar. See, though, though Nebuchadnezzar and the might of the Babylonian empire at the time w- was considerable, they were not the reason that Jerusalem fell under his influence. The story, all that ready at the very outset, wants us to understand that God is up to something. God is at work doing something. And even though things may seem bad and dire and, and really scary, he, he wants us to trust that there's a better outcome ahead and that God has a plan that maybe we don't realize. Again, the story doesn't tell us why, at this point, God would move against his people in this way, but we learn later in the story and through other books of the Bible, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, that that this seeming disaster took place because of the sin of his people. That Daniel confesses later in chapter 9 that they've rebelled against God, that they've turned their back on God's ways, that they were no longer following the ways that God had revealed to them to go. And, and yet, in spite of these appearances, God is still in control. And beyond God being in control, it's not just about God being sovereign and God being in control and having this theological perspective that, yeah, God is all-powerful and all-knowing and that's kind of this who God is. The deeper point that that we want to take away from the book of Daniel is that even when God's people are unfaithful to God, God remains faithful to his people. Let me say that one more time. Even when God's people are unfaithful to God, God remains faithful to his people. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't have to suffer some consequences. and It doesn't mean there aren't outcomes for our choices and our behaviors in life. And God's willingness to continue to bless his people, even in difficult circumstances, is a demonstration of God's larger commitment to the story of redemption, which is the larger arch of history that the Bible begins to teach us about. His plan and his purpose, which ultimately we know now is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Christ. And so Daniel reminds us that God never gives up on the people that he loves. God is always at work bringing his plans and his purposes to fulfillment. And this, more than anything else in life, is what should give us hope, even in the midst of a hostile world. Now we begin to see this story, or the reality of this story, play itself out right here in chapter 1. We read, we read last week that Nebuchadnezzar had ordered the chief of his court officials to instruct Daniel and his friends and these other uh, exiles who had been brought to Babylon, particularly Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, in the language and the literature and the culture of the Babylonians, and he was to assign them a a daily ration of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years so they could be prepared to go into the king's service. They were going to be trained as court officials, as these uh, professional magicians and enchanters and and, and high rulers within the, the culture of Babylon. And so we pick up the story then in verse 8 of chapter 1, where it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this, this way. Now, God had caused, or it says, literally it says, God gave the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard of the chief official who had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Just give it a shot. Let's do an experiment, right? (laughs) Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave, there's God giving stuff again, right? Gosh, God always has given stuff away. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom that's a pretty amazing statement, right? Not just his fellow classmates, right? All of the professional magicians, enchanters in his kingdom. Now, scholars will suggest, if you read some commentaries on this passage, that it's interesting that if we start to think about it, until this point in the story, Daniel and his friends had seemingly provided no resistance whatsoever to the Babylonians at all, right? They had been taken from their homeland, they had received new names, they had submitted to foreign education and training and probably even some, you know, inappropriate religious training for, uh, under other gods, and then all of a sudden it seems that Daniel decides that he's going to resolve not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, <laughs> So doesn't it kind of beg the question, why was this the area that Daniel chose to take a stand? What was it about the food and the wine that was, that was the, the line that Daniel wasn't willing to cross? And, and it's really, to be honest with you, difficult for, for us to say with confidence exactly what Daniel was resisting here, because the, the, the passage doesn't exactly tell us there are possible indications that we can get from the text and from the context of what we know at the time, but the reality is that the story doesn't tell us, and so we're simply left to kind of ascertain as best we can what we think may have been going on for Daniel. Now, we know that the situation had a deep connection to his sense of his relationship with God, right? Because the word defile that is used here have, has this sense of a religious defilement. He doesn't want to, to, to have something get in the way of his relationship with God. He doesn't want God to look negatively on him or to, to, for God to see him as being uh, impure because of eating this food and this wine. Now, this has led many to assume that Daniel's concern was for the Jewish dietary laws, which would be probably where our minds would go to first, right? That keeping God's laws and commandments meant that any good Jewish young man would want to keep kosher, that he would want to not eat uh, certain kinds of meat. Uh, And this may have been part of what was going on for Daniel. Some scholars suggest that there would have been no way to control the way in which the meats would have been butchered and cooked, which even though there would have been some meats that may have been considered kosher, they may not have been prepared in the right way. And so in order to just uh, uh, avoid any risk of being contaminated by food that was prepared in the wrong way, he said, we're just going to avoid all meat and we're just going to go all vegetables, (laughs) which, you know, I mean, that makes some logical sense, but then others come and say, well, but you don't have to avoid wine to be kosher. The Old Testament doesn't say you have to avoid wine in order to not defy yourself, so there's a a little kind of niggling chad hanging there that doesn't quite add up, right, for the kosher argument. This has led others to suggest that often food from the king's tables at that time was often first offered to gods as a sacrifice, And then because those gods weren't real and didn't actually eat the food, right? Then the food would go to the king's table and then the kings would eat it. And so what Daniel was concerned with is he didn't want to eat food that was offered to idols. And so he was avoiding uh, uh, defiling himself in in that way. Um, But then other scholars suggest, well, but it wasn't just meat that was offered to idols. The vegetables would have been offered to them too. So he would have had to avoid all the food in order to not defile himself in that way. So that doesn't quite completely add up either. Hmm. A third possibility is that the culture, in the culture at the time, to accept the provision of the king, his food and his wine and uh, the sustenance that he would provide, would be to enter into a kind of covenant relationship with the king and acknowledge his lordship over them. And so what Daniel maybe was trying to do is he was trying to resist uh, acknowledging that that Nebuchadnezzar was king or lord over his life and that no, only God was king. But again, it kind of breaks down when he doesn't accept the meat, but he accepts the vegetables. So uh, he is accepting some of the provision, but not all of the provision. And so that doesn't also kind of quite add up. Bottom line is that we likely cannot say for sure what exactly, what was Daniel's main concern, but that in each of these scenarios, we can understand somewhat of the kinds of dynamics that was going on that were probably at play in the society at the time, right? uh, Tremper Longman III in his commentary on Daniel suggests that the best answer for us this many years later For understanding Daniel's motivation lies in the very context of the story of Daniel itself. Now, if we keep in mind, he says that Daniel and his friends were in a period of preparation and training to go into service in the king's court, right? That's the context of the story here. Uh, Their minds and their bodies as well were going to be fed by the king's provision for the next three years. Now, if they prosper and they're successful, Longman asks, to whom will they attribute the, the, the uh, development and their success? Will it be the Babylonians? Will it be King Nebuchadnezzar? So, in fact, by refusing to eat the choicest food of the king, which was probably the better food to, to stay healthy and whole and to grow big and to grow strong and, and all the things that you would expect they know that it's not gonna be the king who's responsible for the positive results that they see that they end up looking healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So Longman is suggesting that in the context of what we see happening in the other stories of Daniel, if we go on and read, rather than assuming that Daniel's diet of vegetables and water was somehow smarter and healthier to eat and somehow an eating plan that now we need to model ourselves after because Daniel was so smart all those thousands of years ago. In the context of the larger story of Daniel, just the opposite may have in fact been the case, that Daniel is choosing to eat an obviously inferior diet to what everyone else is eating uh, in, 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 so that if he is prosperous and he's successful, the only possible explanation at the end is that the miraculous hand of God was at work and that what they're seeing is something that only God could have done. Doesn't that fit with the story of Daniel? So this, Longham believes, regardless of to what degree these other theories may be at play, and and to some degree, maybe some or all of them were also at work in there, The core point of the story, he says, and of Daniel's diet of vegetables at water is it's all about highlighting the miraculous hand of God at work, not about our moral ability to choose the good and to pat ourselves on the back and say, look how great of a person Daniel was that he was able to discipline himself to do all these great things. Interestingly, there's something out there today I found in doing some research online. It's called the Daniel Fast. Have any of you heard of the Daniel Fast? This isn't the Daniel Plan. I know many of us here were on the Daniel Plan years ago. It came out of uh, you know, Rick Warren, and that's a whole kind of eating plan. But there's a Daniel Fast where you literally, for either 10 days or 21 days, eat nothing but vegetables and water. You you really duplicate what Daniel did here, and supposedly it's based on these kind of religious ideas that what Daniel was doing was kind of the better way to eat, and so that this is really good and healthy, and you should do this. In fact, Chris Pratt, who's an actor who's Guardians of the Galaxy, and you guys know who Chris Pratt is, right? He was in the news because he was doing the Daniel fast, and he was kind of promoting it as, as this thing that we want to do. Now, doctors and dietitians who've kind of researched it and reviewed the fast have said that while it might be beneficial for a few days, like 10, but they say probably not more than 21 days, it might be beneficial as kind of a cleanse and to kind of restart the digestive tract. It is not a healthy lifestyle eating plan that you would want to pursue for very long. And yet in the story, it says Daniel and his friends ended up eating vegetables and water for three years. And they ended up being healthier and more developed than all of the other young men in the program. And so I think Longman is on to something here that, that the story itself is pointing us away from this uh, amazing behavior that Daniel did that he gets credit for, and, and, and more so that Daniel and his friends were relying on the miraculous power of God to bring the success and the prosperity that they needed so that they couldn't claim the, the glory for themselves, but there was no other possibility to say, to praise God because he did it and it wasn't me. Amen. Now, I think it's also important to recognize at this point in the story that the decision by Daniel and his friends was not a public display of resistance to the king. Did you catch that in the story? This is a private decision that Daniel and his friends choose in their relationship with God, and only they know, and maybe a few of the government officials know, but they're not going to tell the king, right? Because they don't want to die, They're the only ones who know the truth. And so Daniel quietly approaches this, this king's official and asks him for, for this accommodation. And even though it says that God gave him a, a favorable, sympathetic heart towards Daniel, even in his fear, he's like, well, but I don't trust that this is going to work out. And so I can't go there with you. You know. So Daniel's like, okay, gosh, what else can I do? Oh, maybe I can talk to the guard. So he goes to the guard and he says, hey, guard, maybe let's just try this for 10 days, right? Let's give this experiment. And the guard's like, well, oh, okay, I can do it for 10 Ten days, right? And they try it for ten days, and lo and behold, it works out, right? And so it God gives him this pathway and this plan to to pursue this this idea that that ends up producing the fruit that Daniel was hoping for. And so the ups and downs of the story, Daniel is beginning to emerge in the story as the the consummate wise man who who knows how to choose the right behavior in the right way to produce the kind of right result that God would want for him, and to to know how to pursue the right relationship with the right people at the right time to produce the godly effect that, that he's hoping for. And Daniel's 10-day experiment works and his friends eat vegetables and water and, and privately, under the radar, to the glory of God, they end up eating vegetables and water for three years. And as we said here in chapter 1, there are three times when we see that God gave something to someone, right? God gave Jehoiakim and Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave the chief official sympathy for Daniel and his friends. And then in verse 17, we see that God gave these four Judean young men knowledge and understanding beyond anything anybody could have ever expected or explained by any natural phenomena. In fact, at the end of the three years, the king not only recognizes their brilliance, but claims they're ten times superior to all the other professionals in the kingdom. And even though Nebuchadnezzar likely probably took all the credit himself at that point, right? Daniel and his friends knew privately, and we know too as readers now, all these years later, that there was another power at work behind the scenes. And there was one who was the one who was really pulling the strings. There was one who was really producing the fruit. There was one who was really bringing the prosperity and the success for Daniel and his friends. And so maybe for us in our day, it might beg the question for us, where do we hope to find answers for our own progress and development and success in life? Is it from the seemingly choice, fair, the luxurious food that the world has to offer? Or is there maybe another source of wisdom and success that we can come to know in our relationship with God, and if we're willing to maybe forego some of the choices fair and the things that the the world says and maybe even logic says are are going to be the things that are most beneficial, but we trust in the wisdom of God that, that the blessing of God is what will bring the greatest success and prosperity that maybe we didn't anticipate we could have experienced. I think about this in the principle of stewardship. Right? God asks us to trust us with our trust him with our money. And man, it's hard to trust God with our money, isn't it? Because uh, we, we survive on money, we live on money, we we thrive on money. And yet, God's principles throughout the Bible say says, hey, Gosh, you know, if, if you trust me with your money, and you you live generously, and you live open heartedly, and and you you bring the the first fruits of your profits to me, and and you listen to the voice of my spirit, and and you give money away to people when who are in need, and and you're looking for opportunities to to, to to mirror my heart for other people with your money, I'll bless you in ways that you can't imagine. And that's not a prosperity gospel. Don't, don't mishear me here. He may bless you with more money. God does that. But, I, but, but he may bless you in other ways. You, you, may, not, you may not live you know, some wealthy prosperity gospel lifestyle, but you may be rich in joy and happiness and fruitful relationships where you get to the end of your life and you go back and you go, man, I never would do it in any other way. And you look at the people who spent their life chasing the brass ring of upward mobility and trying to keep up with the Joneses, longing for the mansions and the yachts and the Mercedes Benz, all the while looking for all of the luxurious food that the world has to offer, but never being happy or satisfied or or enjoying one moment of their life. Is it possible that some of the things that this world says that we we need in order to be happy, in order to be successful, in order to be fulfilled, in order to be accepted by society around us might actually defile our relationship with God? Not in terms of like breaking God's laws and you've you've made God mad, but, but like in getting us off track with God's best for our life. In in, in taking us away from the the blessings that God would have for us when we're willing to trust in God and choose to live in God's ways, the things that he wants to give us and he wants to lead us to, but but, but we, we won't listen to him and we won't follow his ways because we think that somehow there's another way or we're smarter or that the ways that the world tells us are the right ways. Is it possible that rather than seeing our job as Christ followers, as being the resistors of culture, that maybe we can take a cue from Daniel and learn that instead that God may be inviting us to become once again influencers and transformers of culture? That he wants us to learn how how to live in the world, like Jesus said, but not be of the world. And that we can pursue relationships without judgment and without criticism, but in grace and in mercy without having to force people to to live a Christian lifestyle before they're even Christians. Christians. And to navigate the messiness of those relationships with the wisdom and the grace that God provides for us. And maybe we don't even do that publicly, but maybe it starts privately, behind the scenes, below the radar, where, where we're just doing it in our relationship with God and trusting God to bless us and give us the fruit of that blessing so that we have those opportunities, like we're gonna see next week in chapter two, to actually then tell our story of where God has shown up and done miraculous things in our lives. And what's a stronger testimony, brothers and sisters? Let me tell you about four spiritual laws that you need to believe in order to make it to heaven someday. Let me tell you about the miracle that God did in my life. I was broken and I was destitute and I had no more hope, and God showed up, and he miraculously changed my circumstances, and he brought joy, and he brought healing, and he fixed the circumstance of my life. Which would you want to listen to more? And if you're honest, if you're truthful today, which is closer to your testimony, the first or the second? Isn't it the second? I've been talking with people over the last few weeks about this desire to gather on Fourth Tuesdays and have kind of a, just a disciple gathering for our church. And, I, and I, I've been trying to explain wh- why I want this to happen and what I want it to be like. And the best I've been able to describe it is, is, is it feels like it should be like a celebrate recovery experience. Like, like we're all broken, hurting, sin-addicted people, and we need to come together to acknowledge our brokenness and to lean into one another and say, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, and if you're struggling and you're hurting, here's a place of safety where you can can come and you can be loved and you can be nurtured and you can find healing and you can find the presence of the Spirit to find miraculous power to, to get up off your mat and to walk again when you can't even walk. Anymore, amen. And every time I talk to people, I, I talk to people. Some people kind of go, huh, uh huh, huh, yeah. And then I talk to people who've actually been through Celebrate Recovery, and they go, no way, yes, that's what church should be like. And I feel like, brothers and sisters, there's some sense that we don't even recognize how far into exile we have been taken, and how broken and distant from God's ways we have maybe uh, fallen. And yet in the midst of this hostile world, God is opening new pathways for us to to rediscover new ways of getting beyond the defilement of our relationship with God and, and, and to give up on the choice foods and the wine of the king's table that are so tempting and to get back to the vegetables and the water, which isn't a better diet. It isn't more attractive. It it, it isn't more tasty. On the surface of it, it might even sound kind of boring. And yet God says, if you trust me with it, if you trust me, there are blessings that you may discover in other ways. And there is rich food from heaven that I have for you that maybe you didn't even know existed before. You might remember that Jesus taught his disciples that following him in this world would always create a kind of tension for us, but that we should not seek to separate ourselves from the world, but rather to learn to be salt and to be light in the midst of the darkness in which we find ourselves. You remember his prayer from John 17, beginning in verse verse 14, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them to go hide in church on Sunday morning." I have sent them to only associate with other evangelical Christians who believe the same way they do. I have sent them into the world. How many of you this morning, and don't raise your hand, but answer honestly in your own heart, how many of you today honestly feel like Jesus has sent you on a mission into the world. Because I want to suggest to you that that should be the number one takeaway from your being a part of any church, because that's what the church is. It's the people of God who are set apart to be sent into the world. Not to gather together apart from the world and to separate from the world and to guard our hearts and to guard our lives from being contaminated and defiled by the world. But to be salt and light and to be an influence to change the world. But how we change the world, we need to learn from Daniel because the key is like Daniel and his friends, it takes wisdom to know the right action at the right time and the right word for the right moment in order to affect a godly result. How we engage with the lifestyles and the culture around us will take great patience and wisdom and sensitivity and grace and love and tact because these people don't believe what we believe. They don't know God the way we know God. They haven't been redeemed by the love of Jesus like we have. And ultimately, what we've been saying over and over again is what the world needs the most, what they need to see and to taste and to touch is not what we have to offer, but what no man can do, the miraculous power of Jesus to change their life. God is not interested in legislating lives of external conformity through his will. God desires transformed hearts that lead to lives of thankful obedience and the overflow of his love towards God and neighbor. That's why Paul said ultimately in Ephesians 6, verse 12, our struggle or our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly realms. We, like Daniel, do not need to look to the things of this world or the ways of this world in order to bring us success. And I would suggest to us in this post-pandemic, post-modern, post-Christian world, nothing could be further from the truth for the church. Let me say that again. We, as a church, like Daniel, do not need to look for the things of this world or the ways of this world to bring us success. Rather, we need to look to God and to the wisdom that God provides, learn how to make wise choices that reflect God's goodness among us, that reveal God's blessings to us so that when we have the opportunity, as we will see next week in Daniel chapter 2, all we are simply asked to do is share our story of where God showed up and through his miraculous power blessed us. That's what a testimony is, not about how good we are, but about how good God is and the ways God continues to work for our good and for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Daniel and his friends, for your faithfulness to your people who, even though they turned their backs on you and they walked away from your ways, that you nonetheless, even in exile, remained faithful to them and walked with them and blessed them. In our days of exile, God, when we live in a, a, a non-Christian nation in a world that seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, would you give us hope again in this hostile world? Would you remind us of our calling to be salt and light and to be people of influence and transformation and to not separate ourselves from the world, but, but to be sent into the world with the power of love and the power of grace to overcome the darkness? Not be by by laws and morality and legislation, but by genuine acceptance and mercy and grace to bring your miraculous healing power in the lives of the people who desperately need to know that you are real and that you are alive and that you have a plan and a purpose for their lives as well. God, bring us together as a faith community, and and on Fourth Tuesdays, in the year ahead, and in many other ways, help us to, to taste and see your power at work in our lives, and in our relationships, knowing that we don't have to do it alone, but you have called us together to be the church, to be your community of people who are leaning into one another, so that as we are sent out, we are sent out together to fulfill this mission that you have called us to do, to simply share the testimony of the power of Jesus in our lives. And it's his name we pray. Amen.